I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Takshashila Institution. We're a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring a fresh perspective to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello and welcome to All Things Policy. I'm Manoj Kevalramani and today I have with me my colleague Saurabh who's working on our technology and geopolitics research work. Uh, Saurabh's done some really interesting stuff already and we're looking forward to a lot more interesting outputs from him with regard to how geopolitics is being shaped by technological developments and how technological developments, including biotechnology, is going to shape competition of the future. Saurabh, welcome to this conversation. So thank you, Manoj. So today what we're going to talk about is obviously not technology and geopolitics, but obviously there's part of technology in this. What we're going to talk about is how China and India seem to be competing with each other for space uh, and leadership in some way of the global south. In some ways, in the last couple of days, when we've had this voice of the global south summit, which India held, it felt like to me that we were sort of going back to the 1950s, where China and India seemed to be in some ways competing for the leadership of the global south, although at the same time they seem to be working together for a brief moment, particularly during the Bandung summit, where India sort of facilitated China's, you know, opening up China to the global south in some way. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about uh, what's happened in the Voice of the Global South Summit. And we'll also talk about what the impact of China and India's competition and their outreach to the global south is likely to be. So before we get to any of the BT part of the discussion, Saurabh, can I ask you to tell us a little bit about what exactly was this Voice of the Global South Summit and what was achieved? Uh, yeah, so this Voice of the Global South Summit was proposed as a way to they did understand the needs and aspirations of the global itself. It was a very unique initiative. So, and I'm presuming that given that India has the G20 presidency this year, so they want to have a better understanding and reach some consensus of what are the kind of challenges and support that the global South needs. Also, uh, what was proposed was uh, oh, there were interesting outcomes. So India announced that it would establish a global South Center of Excellence, uh, which uh, is proposed to undertake research on solutions and best practices in any country which that can be scaled and implemented for the other countries of the global South. And so for, for this, for example, the India's digital public goods, like the e-payments, health education, the e-governments, are seen as models for uh, other countries of the global south. They also announced a global south side set technology initiative where India is proposing to share uh, its uh, expertise in space technology and nuclear energy. One other interesting proposal is Arugya Maitan, which is like the government from India to provide essential medical supplies to the, any global south country, which is affected by natural disaster or humanitarian crisis. And they also propose like two other initiatives like the Global South Young Diplomats Forum, which would connect youthful officers of foreign ministries. And there's also a Global South Scholarships, 
for students, for the global south to pursue higher education. Yeah, that's really interesting, right? We had these five specific outcomes. And during the press conference that was held uh, after the summit was over, you had the Indian Foreign Secretary uh, Vinay Quatra taking questions. And he was asked a specific question about how some of these uh, outcomes, some of these sort of initiatives uh, seem to be replicating what the non-aligned movement outcomes were at one point of time. And he, I mean, he didn't really answer the question about whether this was duplication. He sort of basically made the point that, you know, this was something where the Indian government was essentially not trying to duplicate. It was trying to do something different, which was much more suited to this current moment and this current period in time, which is again an interesting way. To me, again, it made this point that in some ways we seem to be going back to the 1950s in what's happening. But yeah, like you said, the Indian government's sort of explanation of this. And if you look at the Indian prime minister's speech, he talks about how, you know, as India begins its G20 presidency, it's natural that we aim to amplify the voice of the global South. So this was sort of pitching India as a leader of the global South. Another interesting sort of outcome from that conversation, that press conference with the Indian foreign secretary was that he was asked a question about China and whether China was invited and things like that. And he explained that, look, it was not a case of not inviting somebody or inviting somebody and being rejected. This was about reaching out to G20 countries. This was about reaching out to Global South countries who are not part of the G20. So therefore, China was not necessarily going to be an invitee because it's already part of the G20. I also want to read out what the Chinese government said when they were asked about this summit, uh, and this was the day the summit had began, the Chinese foreign ministry was asked a question by CCTV. And what you saw was a response which said, and I'll quote, we have noted relevant reports. India has informed China of its considerations and plan for hosting the summit. China has all along called for greater international attention into developing countries, shared aspirations and legitimate concerns. We greatly value the solidarity, cooperation and common development of developing countries. To galvanize international focus on development issues and deepen development cooperation, China has put forward the Global Development Initiative and so on and so forth. So if you can see that the idea was acknowledging the fact that this had happened, acknowledging the fact that China had been informed that this was being done, but at the same time making the case that, look, China has its own initiatives and China has been somewhat the leader in making this case. So I wanted to get your sense on this, Saurabh. Do you see that there is this deepening competition that seems to be existing between India and China? Or are these complementary activities which are essentially going to support the development of the global south? I would say that there does seem to be an element of competition because as we know that like both China and India tried to have an influence in the global south, especially in Africa and South America. So, but I think there is something very interesting going on is that obviously the resource constraints that India has are much higher than those with China. At the same time, there is increased skepticism regarding the initiatives that China has taken to BRI and then the whole concerns about Dead trap the Brahm Sea. So, in a way, uh, one could see that uh, the, the global South countries might be hedging in the sense that they can take advantage of the desire of both India and China to like, uh, extract concessions, initiatives, or publishes on both countries while they compete with each other in the global South. At the same time, I think there is uh, some element of 
increased a partnership with the Western countries of India. They're co-partnering with the Global South. So we have seen with, you know, the India-Africa initiative bits where uh, we have Japan uh, uh, trying to invest with India in, in third countries. And then you have the Blue Dot initiative. All of these, I think, would become a part of this, this uh, strategy where India is trying to compete with China in the Global South. Let's try and let's try and unpack this a little bit, right? So at the same time that India was holding the summit, you have the Chinese foreign minister, Chin Gang, the new foreign minister. He he's been on a visit to African countries, uh, where he's been talking about essentially China's uh, deep engagement with Africa, and this is part of China's decades-long diplomatic process where, you know, annually the first visit by the Chinese foreign minister abroad is uh, to an African country. It's an Africa visit. Although this time you saw a bit of a break in protocol because I think it's a three decade old tradition, but you saw a break in protocol with Chingang stopping over in Bangladesh on the way to Africa, which doesn't seem like it would fall in the way, but okay, that's what he did. And there he met the Bangladeshi foreign minister and he talked about you know, I mean, the Chinese readout doesn't say much, but the Bangladeshi foreign minister speaking to the press in the country talked about how they talked about debt, how they talked about the trade deficit and not necessarily buying happening, how they talked about the Rohingya issue in which China is a committed mediator between Myanmar and Bangladesh, yet not much has changed. That he made a specific comment about how Bangladesh talked to China about, you know, friendship towards all and enmity towards none. And the fact that Bangladesh is essentially looking at growth and development as opposed to getting involved in geopolitical conflicts, which harks to the point that you made about hedging. Um, but this hedging is not going to be easy, right? Because then he goes to Africa and even in Africa and different countries, he's making the case. Like in Ethiopia, speaking about, you know, chat ties between China and Africa, he made the point about, you know, how we must sort of jointly resist hegemonic bullying and so on and so forth, which is essentially making the case about cooperation with the United States and the role of the United States in the world. So you're seeing these sort of trends at the same time, you know, in earlier, a few weeks ago, you had the U.S. summit with African states. And again, there were some sort of announcements and commitments with Biden saying that, look, uh, we are all in with Africa. So you're seeing different parties uh, and different entities being engaged. Later this year, you're going to see the third Belt and Road Forum. In fact, just this week, there was lots of talk about what BRI is going to do for the world in this third sort of Belt and Road Forum. And there was talk about how, you know, so many countries, you know, and 200 sort of support documents have been signed under BRI, you know, 151 countries, 32 international organizations. And the fact that BRI is still going to remain here, uh, along with that, like I said, China has the GDI and the GSI. The GDI is something which is operational. You know, and in June 2022, you had India participate in a high level dialogue on global development with China as the lead. And you saw 32 outcomes being announced around digital cooperation, poverty reduction, you know, customs connectivity. So you had these different announcements uh, that have come up and you've got these different projects. And India is part of some of these and India is not part of some of these. For example, GSI, we still don't know what the details are going to be, but it seems like it's not something that India will necessarily be a part of as an initiative as a whole. So you're seeing elements of cooperation between the two sides, but you're also seeing this element of competition in the third world. And like you said that, you know, these countries might be wanting to hedge, but is hedging really going to be that straightforward and easy? Because at the end of the day, what you're seeing from, you know, although the language now seems to be toned down from the West, and much more sharper from China. Uh, you're seeing from both sides, uh, you know, the West and China, an aspect of 
either you cooperate with us and you don't cooperate with the other side, right? So you've had the Chinese uh, go out to other countries and just like Chingang this time said in Africa that we must say you know, to, no to hegemonic bullying. You've had uh, previously said the Chinese ambassador in Bangladesh make a comment about how Bangladesh must not cooperate with the Quad. So is hedging going to be that straightforward for these countries? I guess that's my question. I don't think so. I mean, I think as the global system becomes too polarized between the US and China, although the countries would have more uh, reasons uh, to hedge and to have more opportunities to extract resources or concessions, but they might also be forced to choose sides. I think as we see, there's no free lunch. So, you know, as countries decide, uh, make with them in, you see it this way. The development system is also becoming more fragmented. So let's say if you do, uh, like, I'm an, an, a third world country, or sorry, a global south country, who's trying to have investments for my infrastructure. I don't think that either China or the US or the West would be happy to do that in that country at the same time. Because the investments, the the prerequisites, and that the quality control of these post two programs are different. So once a country chooses that I would prefer to be a part of BRI as compared to this other European or Western initiatives, they are indeed getting the choice. So in that way, I think it would be a bit uh, a bit difficult. But I, I guess because it's a flux, so I guess the bargaining power with uh, China and the rest is not as absolute. And I think global South countries also have uh, some of this leverage. But I wanted to ask you is that how likely do you think that like this flux can remain? I mean, do, do, do you see that if there's going to be an accelerated move towards this further fragmentation that the countries would have to choose aside as uh, the uh, things become more Polarized between uh, China and the US. Yeah, I, I think that there is. It's it's going to be difficult, you know, and particularly difficult if the competition worsens. You know, what we see saw in the last three four years was because competition was extremely intense, and because you saw intense rhetoric on both sides, you saw third, you saw countries in sort of. Uh, the global south and not just the global south also even you know sort of east asian tigers you saw them sort of becoming much more concerned about you know being forced into choosing sides you saw singapore say that you saw you know other asean countries say that so you saw that sort of stress on just about everybody except for say maybe western european countries although even if you see in western europe there's been a debate about you know whether this sort of polarization works and while say the european union has come around to accepting china as a systemic competitor it does want to cooperate in many different domains and you're seeing in the last since november since the 20th party congress you're seeing european leaders essentially visit china starting with the german chancellor so i think that you're going to see competition and you're going to see this pressure to choose sides but at the same time what you're seeing is that as the competition sort of begins to as you begin to establish some guardrails which is what i think is the objective of this year you know the fact that chin gang uh, is now the foreign minister the fact that from the chinese side lei yucheng who was the vice foreign minister and was seen as one of those world warriors is out of the public space earlier this year then we've seen chao lichian now moved away to a different department not giving him such a public role in china so at least stylistically it seems like you know 
Beijing wants to cool the temperature down. Although substantively, it's very unlikely that the policy will change. And, you know, and the stylistic shift can sort of have some impact on Western countries where they tend to see, you know, the temperatures being cooled down and their desire to establish some guardrails, then see some serious negotiations. And you might at least see some baselines where tensions can be controlled. But I think substantively, the competition will continue. So if in the short run, sort of my answer would be that in this year, I think it might be a little bit easier for the developing world. But the inherent tension between the two sides is going to continue. And if, of course, you see some sort of, you know, every year we see some sort of unforeseen disaster, it seems like. And if you see something like, you know, the nature of the Russia-Ukraine war, if that intensifies, if something different happens in that context, and you have one of these sort of black swans you know, gray rhino kind of events, which amplifies the nature of the competition, then that will again make it extremely difficult. The example that I would use is that how India has sort of hedged, you know, until at least 2020 between the United States and China. And since then, after the Russia-Ukraine war, sort of hedged its bets a little bit between the United States and Russia. You see that I think the similar sort of difficult process for these countries. And let's take some examples, right? I mean, if you look at Sri Lanka today, Sri Lanka is caught between uh, in a very, very difficult situation. It needs both India and China, which are its key creditors, to try and agree on some sort of debt servicing agreement, which allows it to access IMF bailouts. China is by far the bigger sort of creditor. In Sri Lanka owes uh, significantly more amount of money to China than to India. I think the total uh, with regard to India is around $1 billion. With regard to China, it's uh, much larger. And it's basically requiring these countries. I mean, China, I think the amount is around $7 billion, right? So $7 billion to China, $1 billion to India. It needs to agree to some sort of a payment plan with both these countries. It's waiting for that to happen so that it can access uh, around a $3 billion bailout from the IMF. But it's not been able to agree to this. And both sides, uh, India and China, seem to have a different view, right? The Indian side, you know, at least reportedly believes that, look, of course, we can agree to this, but we also need to get uh, decent terms of payment. And we don't want to be shortchanged in terms of your terms of payment with regard to what you agree with China. So in, in some ways, there's a sort of rivalry, which is spilling over into having an impact on the Sri Lankan economy. And in this next week, we are going to see, we already see, already have a Chinese delegation, which is in Sri Lanka today. And later next week, we are going to see the Indian foreign minister visiting Sri Lanka. And I presume this will be the key topic of discussion. At the same time, if you see uh, over the last year, Sri Lanka has been in the crosshairs with regard to Chinese surveillance of spy vessels visiting Sri Lanka and India calling on Sri Lanka to desist from doing that. And it's been in a tough bind. So my point is that while you may be hedging, you will also have to make these decisions, which are going to be really, really difficult for any of these countries to make. And at the end of the day, you need to think of your own development interests in terms of making them. But they are, you know, underpinned by what are the interests of these larger countries. So it's not going to be easy. You know, none of this is going to be easy. I do agree that it does create some more opportunities to sort of take advantage of competition. But with that, again, it's going to be, you also have to regard the interests of your larger neighbors as you take advantage of the competition between them. So yeah, so it's not necessary that, you know, that this intense attention on the global south of the developing world is necessarily going to yield positive outcomes. Uh, it can, but it may not necessarily. So I wanted to like shift evidence and uh, ask you regarding, so I mean, there, there does seem some 
parallels between, you know, the 1950s and 60s and how India, how India and China were trying to be the leader of the East Global South. So in this case, I mean, obviously, the world has changed since then. India has changed, China has changed, and the needs of the Global South have also evolved. I mean, do we see that, I mean, how prepared do you think India is to respond to this challenge? I mean, it's one thing to have a summit and you know, have all these commitments. And with uh, China, we're having more resources and with India having its own constraints, how likely do you see like this, this process unfolding? I mean, what are the certain cooperations that you would recommend for India to, as it tries to, uh, like, you know, like, resort itself as either the global south also, which is more democratic, is, I think, yeah. also big edits. Yeah. I mean, look, um, uh, it's really difficult to sort of answer that question. But my first thought would be that I think it's important to keep in mind that one of the reasons why Indian foreign policy has yielded successes in the last few years is fundamentally because, you know, we've been able to put national interests first. Now, national interest does not need to be parochial. It need not be something where we only look at what we gain from it, from a transaction. But it's important to keep in mind that you don't start to, you know, buy your own, you know, sort of spiel. You need, you at least are able to distinguish between what you are actually able to achieve, what your resource capacity is, and what you're doing with that. So I think that we need to be a little bit careful about this whole business of becoming the leader of the global south and not get caught up in rhetoric which ultimately does not end up yielding any outcomes or which alienates partners that we may have in the developed world. So that's the first thing, because I think it's important to understand that the objective of any of the work that we do is for India to become a much more robust developed country. At the same time, that process needs to be a process in which if we can, we should be facilitating the lifting of all boats. So there are successful uh, things that India has done, particularly in digital infrastructure and other things. And I think it's fair enough for us to reach out and talk about those and share those experiences with the developing world. But I think it's really important not to become or position ourselves as some sort of third pole. Because I don't think that's at this point of time, that's going to serve us well. And we don't think we should be doing that. So therefore, in that sense, I think I like how the foreign secretary spoke about this summit when he was asked. He sort of basically made the point that we were trying to reach out to countries that were not in the G20 to try and see if we can take their points of view to the G20. Rather than sort of talking about this in the context of a, you know, Cold War as environment you know, so I think that that's the first thing that we need to be a little bit careful about how we project ourselves in this context. Secondly, I think it's important to think of the fact that, look, we don't need to overextend ourselves into the global south. And if you really want to be able to provide leadership to the global south, what you need to do is that you need to not only develop your own economy, but also have an open economy in some ways. Uh, and that means open for trade for people and those sorts of things. And I think for that, we need to look at what we are doing within our neighborhood first. Is India the engine that's powering the growth of the subcontinent? That's not really the case, right? I mean, it's not really doing that. So there's lots more that we need to do with regard to our own economic growth and then linking that to our neighbors to begin with. Uh, and of course, other countries, because if we are unable to achieve that, then none of this really makes any sense. So I, I think it's really important for us to be able to do that. 
to be able to become, you know, one of the drivers of at least regional growth, if not growth in the global south. So I think that's the second thing that I would say that we need, and that requires some sort of a mindset change, you know, in terms of what we do. Third, like you had pointed out, right, we need to be able to partner with countries such as Japan, countries such as Australia, countries such as United States, and to be able to bring our expertise onto the table for meaningful project execution in the global south. It's one thing to keep talking about the BRI and, you know, telling people that you need to have you know, sustainable, feasible, financially sustainable project execution and things like that. It's another thing to actually deliver them consistently in time. I think the one thing that China does really well is that it understands that democracies have four or five year election cycles and politicians who are agreeing on certain projects need to see deliverables within certain timeframes. They can't extend beyond certain timeframes because when that does happen, it tends to have an adverse impact domestically, politically. And therefore, you see execution at really good rates from the Chinese. And that makes a difference to local politicians, right? Because local politicians at the end of the day are looking at what is not just the developmental gains that they are being able to bring, but also their political survival. And I think the Chinese understand that so much better than how we are able to. So I think it's really important to understand that and then to execute projects and then to be able to make the point that our engagement has been beneficial for the people, not just for the politicians. And again, I think the Chinese are reasonably good at trying to make that point. They've been bad in the past, but I think they've learned from their mistakes and they are making the point much more strongly, uh, particularly as the criticism of debt has come on them and the criticism of, you know, supporting corruption in other countries has come on them. They've sort of made the point that, look, our engagement is also people-centric and things like that. So I, I think that we need to also do that, but we need to work with our partners to be able to do that. For the longest time, uh, Indian project delivery has been not up to scratch and we need to be able to do that much more effectively. But that said, there are certain examples. Right? I mean, I was recently at a conference where I met you know, scholars from Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, and I was hearing about, you know, India's railway development work in Sri Lanka being, a you know, case study in how to do something well. And I think we need to market that much better and we need to learn from what we did well over there and continue to do much more of that because that's what's, uh, you know, that's what's eventually going to get us recognition. It's going to get us the appreciation that we want. It's going to demonstrate the leadership that we want to demonstrate. So yeah, I'd sort of make those three points, right? Don't buy your own spiel you know keep focus on what your sort of national interest is you know work with your partners and your national interest need not be just limited to your own immediate interests but you need to be connecting your growth to the growth of other countries also all right so with that i think sort of is there anything that you want to add yeah i i think that we have seen be careful of what we commit and what we do and the all right. So with that, we'll wrap up this conversation. Saurabh, thank you so much for joining me for this chat on the Voice of the Global South Summit and India-China competition and cooperation and potential spillovers in the developing world. I think this is, again, an evolving and developing space and there's lots more that we can talk about, particularly if we pick specific regions over time. But it's something that we'll be watching out for this year as India hosts the G20 Summit and China hosts its next Belt and Road Forum. Saurabh, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Manoj. Happy to be here. And thank you so much for listening, everyone. Have a good day. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts 
on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website takshashila.org.in.